after enjoying a very pleasant time with Mrs. Timberlake, I had a couple of addresses. The first was most unsettling, as the couple with whom I was boarded, were far from ideal. This begs the question, how many children suffered one form of abuse or neglect, at the hands of people who had been given custody of them, without any checks being made as to the suitability of the caregiver? It is understood that this might have been an impossible task but, surely the authorities could have asked the children to report any such unsuitable conditions or ill treatment to their teachers? No such instructions were ever given. Of this, I'm certain, and, as a direct result of my own efforts, it was arranged for Mrs. Timberlake's daughter, Gladys, to take me in. Gladys and her husband, Stan, lived five doors up from her mother in Oak Ridge Road. This move proved most propitious, particularly for me. Stan Mendy was a fine man and an expert cabinet maker in a local factory. We had met quite often, while I was living at number 75, and we had formed a friendly and respectful relationship. He became a father to me and I was, for the first time in my memory, living in a normal household. Without meaning to appear disrespectful, of the outstanding job my gran and my mother had done, my stay with the Mendys was most satisfying and almost like being in my own home. Stan Mendy would help and assist me, if I requested it, and he always willing for me to tag along, when he was doing any of the many odd jobs about the house. Sadly, I didn't take full advantage of this willingness, having a rather full social life of my own. I lived to regret my short-sightedness. However, I had a clear conscience, because I was often able to help him and or make shopping trips on his behalf. I'll never forget a trip to the Ironmongers. Stan was building a chicken house and required roofing felt. This asphalt-based material was packaged in very heavy rolls. Being overly keen to please, I volunteered to fetch one, as Stan was working and wouldn't be able to buy it himself until the weekend. Oh. How I struggled. My pride was seriously pricked so no mention, of the very real hardship, was made by me. In spite of everything my pleasure, to be able to help, was sincere. Cruel and mischievous fate must have smiled, however, when it was discovered that another role was needed. There are no prizes, for knowing who fetched it. A few indications of everyday life, in this period of time, might be of interest. The Mendy's home, like Mrs. Timberlake's, was gaslit and the gas mantles were obliged to be lit and extinguished by hand. Like so many thousands of similar homes, at that time, neither of the homes had an indoor toilet nor a bathroom. An attached outhouse was reached, by walking along the side of a house and bathing was done in a galvanized bathtub. This ubiquitous item was invariably hung, on the outside wall of the house and just short of the outhouse. Friday was the traditional bath night, for the whole family. It was this day, that the bathtub would be brought into the parlor, usually, in front of the fire. Often the bathwater, which had to be heated on the gas stove in saucepans and pots, would be shared judiciously. Obviously children bathed, with little privacy, earlier than the adults. Of course many homes of this period DID have bathrooms and indoor toilets but, I suspect even more didn't have this convenience. My grand's home had two indoor toilets and a bathroom. The bathwater was heated, by a fearful contraption called a geyser. This monstrosity, which always appeared about to explode, allowed cold water to enter at the top and then descend a lengthy narrow spiral tube to the spout, or tap. Lit gas jets, situated below the spiral tube, allowed the water to heat as it traveled downwards. The principle was improved beyond measure and, later, highly efficient models were heating water in many places of the home, most usefully, in the kitchen or scullery. Another long-abandoned practice, but one that most households adhered to rigidly, was the habit of doing routine jobs on a special day. Here we are assuming that, as most were, the housewife stayed at home working while the husband went out to work, Monday, for example, was washing day when the washing was, invariably, hung on a clothesline to dry in the garden or yard. 
This also meant that the family's main meal consisted of cold meat, from the universal Sunday roast, and potatoes, due to the lack of time to properly cook a meal. Tuesday was set aside for airing and ironing. Airing, at the time, was invariably in front of the open fire and on a framed wooden contraption called a clothes horse. This practice was followed, to remove any moisture that might still be in the item being aired. Wednesday was set aside, for the many mending, darning and sewing jobs that needed doing. All clothing and bedding were expensive and many items were made, mainly, of wool. The rest, with the exception of silk and lace and other highly expensive materials, were made with cotton, almost exclusively. This ensured, that repairs were always required. Rayon and nylon began to appear, but it was not until after the war that the glut of man-made fibers became common in clothes and furnishings. Another day was set aside, traditionally, for baking and yet another day for housekeeping, which was virtually a spring cleaning every week. Saturdays were, often, the day the family shopping was done. As with most of the household chores, men played little part, even the best of men. Washing up, but more commonly drying up, was sometimes done by the man of the house. Shopping, however, was usually considered the wife's domain. By the same token, men did all the household repairs and renovating in, also, the gardening. Certainly the stage was set, for a small revolution by the women of the day. It is questionable, perhaps, if it needed to be so drastic and far-reaching. I should mention that, in those days, wireless receivers, known as wireless sets, were newly on the scene and not commonly found in the homes of ordinary folks. Long before the advent of the transistor and in the absence, very often, of electricity in the homes, most of the wireless sets that were used were run by batteries. These batteries required a regular visit to the local store that sold new, as well as recharged, batteries or, accumulators, as they were called. The fledgling television broadcasting, severely restricted as to availability and hugely expensive, was shut down at the commencement of hostilities. Cheap wireless sets began to find their way into the homes, after the government's pledge to keep the populace informed. In this regard, the BBC performed superbly and responsibly throughout the war. It was, one mustn't forget, the sole wireless broadcaster in the country. It didn't take long for the public to realize that the BBC was a reliable and truthful source of news, whether it was good news or bad news. Consequently and before too long, virtually the whole population listened to the BBC's 9 o'clock evening news bulletins. Although there were a number of news broadcasts during the day, none achieved the universal popularity that the evening 9 o'clock bulletins did. This huge following persisted, until the end of the war. People, who were without a wireless set, were invited to the homes of those who did have a set. Failing this, the news was passed on by word of mouth, most effectively. However, outside the wish of many to catch one of the other news bulletins, listening to the wireless was not a popular pastime. In spite of crippling paper shortages, that many publishing businesses were not able to survive, the major newspapers continued to be published during the war. However, the sizes of these newspapers were seriously depleted and, sometimes, consisted of merely four pages. However, when the fortunes of war changed for the better, newspaper size also increased. Newspapers became very popular and, even though they lost ground against the BBC when it came to veracity, the BBC was unable to compete in the matter of the many explanatory war diagrams and battlefront maps the newspapers were able to print. It was these diagrams, drawings and maps, that prompted me to become a keen student of the war. In the absence of much organized professional sport, I chose to become obsessed with the happenings of the war that was raging. I confined my keen interest and study to the European theatre, while keeping a watch in brief on the late-arriving Pacific theatre. This strong interest has lasted, ever since those early youthful days. I think it must have been for Christmas, 1939, 
I first returned home for a short visit. Nothing is recalled of that time at home but, it is remembered that shortly thereafter, it became a habit for me to go home on more and more weekends. Life took on some regularity, what with my weekdays at the Mendy's home and being at my real home from Friday evening until Sunday afternoon. It has to be said that, everything being considered, life was good for the Anderson child. It had to end. On August the 24th, 1940, during the school holidays, London suffered its first air raid. It was insignificant and, later, we learned that the bombs had been dropped inadvertently. Meanwhile the Battle of Britain raged but, in London, this was largely unseen and unheard. Nevertheless, it is recalled how we were all greatly heartened, by the huge successes claimed by the RAF fighters. Sadly, as a result of the Luftwaffe raid on London, my mother decided that my homecoming privilege would be suspended indefinitely. I was disappointed but, not greatly so, because I was quite content to be with the Mendes. My schooling was progressing well, my circle of friends was large and my time was full and well spent, albeit, doing childish things. It will be realized that, under total war conditions, people, particularly children, were obliged to make many of their own amusements. Outside of school hours, much time was spent outdoors, regardless of the weather. As can be imagined, balls, bats, and chasing about figured large in our lives, along with the pencils and paper with which we knew dozens of games that we could play outside in the fresh air, or indoors if absolutely necessary. It was about this time my lifelong passion for trains, and steam locomotives in particular, was rekindled. A small group of us would visit the level crossing at the end of Oak Ridge Road. Most of the trains were goods trains hauling war supplies but, during an evening visit, two or three passenger trains hauled by important locomotives could be seen. These were duly noted, using my short grubby pencil, and my grubby notebook. Life, for me at least, was still good. My fascination with steam locomotives, and trains in general, began when I was a toddler. Gron's house wasn't very far from Addison Road Station. Later I was to learn that she took me often, at my request, to see the trains. This was most often done, from a private road that ran between the old Olympia Exhibition Halls, on one side, and the railway tracks on the other. This station, and the railway track that passed through it, has experienced a checkered history, as far as utilization is concerned. During both world wars the lines were vitally important but, outside those years, the rail traffic has alternated between heavy, and being almost non-existent. Much discussion and argument surround the people who possess a passion for the steam locomotive and, or, train generally. The practice of train watching is particularly derided, by many. I suggest that this derision is derived, as in so many instances of blanket condemnation, from insufficient conversance with the matter they condemn. It was my experience, that many train watchers went on to also learn the social and practical history of railways, generally, and of some aspects in particular. Everyone should surely be allowed to follow their own paths to pleasure and fulfillment provided, of course, that others are not harmed, inconvenienced, or otherwise disturbed. There is within me a genuine feeling of profound sadness, for anyone unfortunate enough not to have witnessed a brightly burnished steam locomotive rushing by, its rake of carriages snaking along behind it. The sight, the sounds and the smells, associated with the steam and the smoke of locomotives, were almost hypnotic to many people, especially small boys. Many found it impossible, not to be stirred by a locomotive's passing. The distinctive and defining noise of spent steam being exhausted, and the resounding noise of pounding pistons could cause, in different people, either consternation or delight. Whenever a speeding locomotive passed, its awesome power was clearly evident. Clearly evident because, it caused the ground to reverberate like a mid-sized earthquake before, during, and after, its wholly momentous passing. Then, although the locomotive had long passed from sight, 
there was left lingering in the air a unique and distinctive smell of steam, oil, and smoke. Yes, they were dirty. Yes, they were inefficient. Yes, they were noisy. Nevertheless, steam locomotives were awesome things that bespoke mechanical power and progress as little else could do, or ever has done. With steam traction, there was inspiration and there was passion. In comparison to this, with diesel and electric traction, there are merely comfort and quietness along with a monotonous uniformity. My next foray home, from High Wycombe, was to enable my attendance at my mother's second wedding. This took place on the 16th of November 1940, at the Hammersmith Registry Office. A blitz was in full swing at the time, the Germans having changed their tactics. Instead of bombing the airfields, the Luftwaffe had turned their attention to the major cities of Britain, concentrating upon London which, during the period from the 7th of September to the 15th November, suffered 67 heavy air raids and 68 nights. The raid on the night of the 15th was the last for a while, but it was very heavy. That night most of the family, drawn together for the wedding, sprawled hunched over and huddled in the hallway of my grand's house. Sleep was impossible. The cacophony caused by bombs, shell fire, falling shrapnel and enemy bombers was, at times, deafening. The next morning, picking our way past bomb damage and much destruction, we walked the mile or so to the registry office. Shortly afterwards, we walked back home. There was no honeymoon. My new stepfather had to return to his camp and mother had to work on the Monday. Everyone was waiting for the other boot to drop, on the Saturday night, but there was no air raid. The return trip to High Wycombe was made on the Sunday where my experience was, no doubt, exaggerated. The school Christmas holidays, saw me home again. Nightly bombings by the Luftwaffe occurred very frequently, at this stage. By this time the family wisely had decided that the flooded Anderson shelter, even with it being dank and malodorous, was a better place to be than the comfortable house. Fortunately for me, my mother and my gran had got into a sensible routine. I merely obeyed the few instructions and carried out my few responsibilities associated with the change of bedroom. My belief that Hitler knew, precisely, when I was at home was confirmed when, on the 29th of December, a very heavy air raid occurred. I had the unshakable belief that Hitler had sent his entire bomber force to annihilate me that night. Until the flying bombs in 1944, this night was my worst and most frightening experience of the war. The terrifying noise, normally associated with an air raid, was augmented by numerous newly sighted anti-aircraft guns which had been brought to aid London's defences. Until then, they had been retained to protect airfields and other strategic targets. A particularly loud explosion, and the subsequent pressure wave, caused us all to run outside to the street. There, just about to move on, we were in time to see a mobile heavy gun. The size of the carrier, required to move it, spoke of the gun's large caliber. Sadly, this gun was most unsuitable for the purpose it was fired. In all likelihood, this gun did more destruction to the adjacent homes and shops than to the enemy. Nevertheless, we were all pleased that, for once, a meaningful show of force was being exhibited to the attacking planes. Until that time, London's defences were pitifully small and ineffective. Even if they hit nothing, it was good to see and feel that we were fighting back. That night the adults in the house fought three or four incendiary bomb conflagrations. Fortunately, most were in the street and in our garden. However, one was extinguished in our attic. We were lucky, that the house escaped with only minor damage. It was a most frightening night. Quite a few more occasions saw me home during air raids of varying intensity. Throughout them all, I feigned bravery, but cringed cravenly. There is something particularly nerve-wracking, about being unable to take any effective precautions nor being able to fight back in some manner. In May 1941, a real lull came in the bombing and it was thought safe for me to return to London regularly. 
Much of the time I was safely ensconced at High Wycombe my mother and grandmother, along with countless others, had to endure the very real terror of bombing on almost a nightly basis. From August 1940 until April 1941, day and night raids on London were the rule. After April 1941, raids of varying intensity took place sporadically, until about the end of 1943. During all of this, not only did the civilians have to endure loss of sleep and serious disruption but, they were expected to perform their daytime tasks as normal. As an example, of what many did, my mother walked to work many times. These were the numerous times when public transport was too seriously disrupted, by bomb damage, to run any type of schedule. She worked in Baker Street, a distance of about four miles, and often she was forced to clamber over rubble to reach her objective. It would be untrue, if I stated that these awful facts were known to me at the time. Maybe, it was for the good that I didn't know. The numerous civilians, from the bombed and battered cities, exhibited very real courage and resourcefulness. Their victory has never been, properly, acknowledged. Back in High Wycombe, life wasn't that bad, for me. Outside of the hours in school, we found many things to do. Most boys had a tennis ball, or something similar, in their pocket. Impromptu football games and cricket games were played against walls of one sort, or another or unsuitable open grassland. Goals and wickets were marked by chalk on the walls, while jackets and coats were utilized for goalposts on grass. None took scoring too seriously, although being out at cricket sometimes produced arguments, or, occasionally, temper tantrums. Not, I hasten to add, by me. Once in a while, our activities would annoy an adult and we would be told to scarper. Very few youngsters would dream, of answering back or being cheeky to an older person. It just wasn't done. Likewise, deliberately to wantonly damage property, was most definitely avoided. We had all seen too much damage, to see any entertainment value or casual interest in it. I'm not saying, that accidental damage wasn't done by stupidity or thoughtlessness. After all, we were far from being saints. In addition to the numerous well-known pastimes, enjoyed by countless children over the years, one was new. At least, it was, to most of us evacuees. Our new place of residence was a famous, and reputable, furniture manufacturing town, and it had been so for ages. Furniture was needed in wartime, so the factories nearly all were open and operating. Old-fashioned chairbacks were plentiful, and cheap. Damaged ones were sometimes given away. We learned that with a couple of these backs as runners and some short planking, to sit upon and hold the two backs together, we had a perfectly acceptable sled. High Wycombe is surrounded by the Chiltern Hill so, consequently, we had ample suitable slopes to sled down. The hill below the famous West Wycombe Church was a favorite spot of mine, as well as of many others. With the overly protective attitude of today, one shudders to think of the rigid rules that would be associated with such a pastime now. As it was, although we spilled and tumbled from the sleds and not one scrap of protective clothing was worn, none was killed or seriously injured, in spite of many high-speed accidents. Collecting, has always been one of any boy's favorite pastimes. It didn't matter what was collected, only how many. Once more, the grubby notebook and pencil were found to be essential. Vehicle number plates, locomotives, types of aircraft, these and other numbers, or types, were noted carefully, if and when they were observed. It is felt necessary to mention that, due to rigorous petrol rationing there being far fewer cars registered than today, vehicular traffic was far less in volume than nowadays is the case. Also collected were cigarette cards. These cards were placed, in a packet of cigarettes, by the manufacturer. Although the practice was discontinued, it did continue into the war for some time. The cards were in sets, usually of 50 cards, and they depicted various subjects and objects. Many were splendidly produced and it is certain that sales rose, 
for a particular brand of cigarette, if the current cards were popular with children. It was of course to the youngsters, that the cards were directed, and many were the adults who were stopped in the street and asked if they had any cigarette cards. There were sets portraying footballers, cricketers, racing cars and drivers, military cap badges, trees, butterflies, railway locomotives, production cars, military uniforms, ships, of all types, airplanes, foreign or British and weaponry of all descriptions and all ages, etc., etc. The quality was, invariably, superb, sometimes it was truly superlative. The cigarette manufacturers, likely to defray costs, issued albums wherein could be placed the various cards in a set. These sets, albums or even individual loose cards, were always items that were highly prized. Another collectible was shrapnel. Very few boys didn't have, a shrapnel collection. The many thousands of bombs dropped and shells fired, during hostilities, produced a prodigious amount of fragmentary debris. This debris rained down on the earth like hailstones during air raids. Initially it was wickedly jagged, sharp and red-hot. It cooled, but remained a definite hazard when being handled. Added to pure shrapnel, we'd collect airplane parts, parachute pieces, military buttons and badges, shell casings and bullets, along with anything else that could be considered, even remotely, war material. So prevalent was this ardent collecting that, when enemy pains were displayed as visual propaganda, guards were placed specifically to stop small boys from breaking off pieces and collecting them. Of course, the presence of the guards meant that the obtaining of a souvenir became a battle of wits, which the small boys often won. Due to the difficulties involved in importing food and other essential goods of all types, allied to the inability of the country to grow sufficient food to feed the population, a strict rationing of most items was instituted early in the war. It is true that a back market existed but, by and large, this never became a serious problem because, unlike today, the United Kingdom was a well-disciplined and a law-abiding nation. Of course those in rural areas, and farmers in particular, hardly knew the meaning of the word rationing when it was applied to food. Government inspectors abounded and one report stated that, at their peak, there were 50,000 such officials attached to the Ministry of Food. For all their number they were incapable of stopping all the irregularities, involving the slaughter of livestock and other offenses, which occurred mainly in the rural areas. Wartime rations would seem scant fare, to most people today. Enough food to consist of a person's weekly ration is eaten, very often these days, by a single person at one meal. Children, raised in a time of plenty, have been seen to eat a person's three months ration, in a day. In August 1942, the following rations were being allocated to the vast majority of the population. Expectant mothers, and workers in particularly strenuous employment, had special consideration, whenever possible, it must be repeated, that these amounts were the maximum allowed. There was no guarantee of them being available, in whole or in part, at the shops. The weekly ration, per person, consisted of the following quantities. One shilling and two pence worth of meat, which equated with about one and some half pounds of meat and, depending upon the actual meat involved, enough for one good meal, maybe, four ounces of bacon or ham, four ounces of cheese, four ounces of margarine, two ounces of butter and two ounces of cooking fat, two ounces of tea and eight ounces of sugar. In August 1942, a person was allowed to purchase 16 ounces of hard soap, 16 ounces of preserves, jam, marmalade or jellies, and 8 ounces of sweets, that month. In addition, consumers could spend a total of 20 points that one particular month, on tin goods, dried fruit and some other special foodstuffs, like biscuits, cereals, split peas. Points were issued in books containing stamps which could be torn out. The value of points varied, according to the state of supplies, and their value was always fluctuating as was the total that a consumer was allowed to use in a month. 
Points came to be used for many items of consumer use and included, at various times, furniture, clothing, special tin goods, Epicurean specialities, dried eggs and special fruits. The points allocation allowed consumers one packet of dried eggs, equivalent to 12 eggs, every two months. Fortunately, some things remain free of rationing, officially, although, occasionally, shopkeepers imposed their own restrictions, if their supplies were less than normal. Milk and eggs were controlled for a while and a person was allocated three or four pints of milk a week and three or four eggs per month. However, milk was usually available as was bread which, until the war was over, remained unrationed. It was only after the war that socialist bungling kept rationing in force and, then, included bread. So many things were in very short supply or completely unobtainable during the worst of the war. New bicycles, for example, were impossible to find for many years, although many bicycle parts were available, if one searched around. Virtually all building supplies were commandeered by the government for home repairs necessary because of the bombing. Metal objects, from pins to pots and pans, were almost unavailable for a long time. Life went on, however. My life was pleasant enough, in High Wycombe with the Mendes. I was allowed more freedom than I had experienced at home but, I also had a strict discipline as to what I did and where I went. Woe betided me if I was later, then allowed, going home. I mayn't have been the brightest lamp on the stage, but I had enough sense not to disobey my foster parents. Then, one day, Mrs. Mendy surprised me greatly by appearing alongside the school playground at lunchtime. She had trekked to Sands, pushing her young daughter Jillian in her pram, in order to give me a telegram from home. Although the telegram was completely unexpected and the subject of it was long past and forgotten, no trepidation was felt when the telegram was handed to me. For this, I have no explanation. Notwithstanding, the envelope was opened and I was surprised to read that I had been awarded a London County Council scholarship. Mrs. Mendy was elated, as I was myself. Soon, the summer holidays were upon us and I was at home again in Hammersmith. Sadness enveloped me, at leaving the pleasant and hospitable home of the Mendys, but I was excited with the prospects that awaited me. I visited the Mendys, on a couple of occasions after the war. Frank and George, Mrs. Timberlake's sons, came home unharmed. Very sadly, Gladys Mendy died young and unexpectedly. One could state one's preference, on one of the numerous forms that were sent to us from the London County Council Schools Board. If it is remembered correctly, three schools were to be selected in descending order of desirability. It turned out that my marks were sufficiently high, to allow me my first choice of school. The Latimer Upper School was to be blessed with my presence after the holidays. Latimer was, of course the logical choice after attending the junior, or endowed, school but I had a further reason for wishing to attend the upper school. My uncle Ray had attended the school, less than 20 years previously. Much of that summer was spent at Laurel Farm and, for once, I couldn't wait to return home to start my new school. That August saw me in the second form, but not at Hammersmith and the school's own premises. Instead we were in Slough, some 20 miles from central London. Here, I was billeted in the community of Stoke Pogues, with a family named Singh. At the risk of appearing unreasonable, it must be said that this accommodation was far from ideal. Mr. and Mrs. Singh were perfectly normal. They exhibited kindness and I was truly grateful, to them, for putting a roof over my head. However, I was banished to the servants' quarters and not permitted to frequent the family's domain. This, in itself, wasn't intolerable. It would be untrue if I said I didn't feel insulted and demeaned by this, to me, an unaccountable attitude. The servants, a gardener, a housekeeper and a maid, were pleasant enough, to be sure. The problem was I was confined to one room, the huge kitchen. This was usually the hub of activity and noise, until late at night, and contained only one table, 
the large table used for all aspects of cooking. This meant it was not suitable for me to study at, or write on. My room, which lay immediately off the kitchen, had no facilities suitable for study or writing in, for a large proportion of the day, was used for the maid's young child to sleep in. The inconvenience this caused me, when added to the bedding forever smelling of urine, made my living conditions very unsatisfactory. I made inquiries and, with the experience gained at High Wickham, swiftly managed to get myself billeted with a schoolmate with a Mrs. Hay. Mrs. Hay's husband was in the Royal Navy and, although I never saw him, he sent both the lads living with his wife small mementos. In particular, I recall receiving an Italian officer's cap band. The large hay home backed onto the Stoke Pogues golf course and on the boy I was with, and whom I have forgotten all details, and myself, used to do some impromptu and unofficial caddying for the golfers. We were in a prime location, a place where balls came out of the blue and landed in thick undergrowth close to where we were waiting. Having espied the location of the ball, we would wait until the golfers had given up looking for their ball and, then, offer our assistance. Time often precluded us from caddying, for more than about nine holes. Nevertheless, many of the golfers were very generous, although a few never thought of tipping us. Of course, we didn't dream of asking for payment, although it was most welcome when they did give us a shilling or a sixpenny bit. My life was pleasant, with Mrs. Hay and her two dachshunds Tosca and Zenda. The trouble at this stage of my life was my own stupid conceit, even if it wasn't a conscious emotion at the time. My lack of application was not deliberate but, due undoubtedly to my almighty swollen head over gaining the scholarship, my lack of attention caused the loss of much of the vital groundwork of my education. The full weight of my folly was brought home to me when my mother read my school report. Her look, a profound disappointment in me, caused me an anguish I never wished to be repeated. Her quiet but succinct words to me, although spoken, were not necessary, and I was mortified with shame. This serious, and stupid, lack of attention was rude for the rest of my life. Although efforts were made, to catch up with the work, it was too great a task and it wasn't achieved. For what it's worth, let none say I didn't admit my stupidity. Perhaps von Schiller said it best, with stupidity, the gods themselves struggle in vain. How very true this is, but, how much worse, for a mere mortal such as me. The school returned to Hammersmith, for the autumn term of 1943, with me very keen to start the Herculean task of cramming two years' work into one. Some major changes occurred, during the school's summer holidays. My mother rented a home, in Surbiton at 140, King Charles Road, and it was here that a new chapter of my life began. When school started, I accompanied my mother to the railway station each morning. There, she caught a train to Waterloo and I caught a number 65 bus to Kew. Here, I caught a bus or trolley bus to Hammersmith. We continued this morning walk, of about three quarters of a mile, while we lived in Surbiton. It meant me arriving at school first and by a considerable margin, most mornings. After school I would travel home, start my homework and usually prepare the evening meal. The morning walk served a useful purpose, in that we used the time to refresh my memory and instill new knowledge of arithmetic and a few other subjects on which the walk, and the time, afforded me the opportunity to bone up. It might be of some interest, to list the subjects I was studying in my final years at school. These were, in no particular order, arithmetic, algebra, geometry, English grammar, English literature, French, Latin, geography, history, divinity, physics, chemistry, mechanics, logic, art, woodwork and, finally, sports and physical training. I also belonged to the chess club. At Surbiton, until late in our residence there, there was no time for me to have friends or to do anything other than homework, both scholastically and domestically. The routine for the school days has been described, but of course the weekends were different. 
Saturday morning saw me fully engaged with the weekly household and grocery shopping. There were no supermarkets in those days, of course. Shopping entailed visiting, at the very least, each of the following shops, the grocers, the butchers, the green grocers and the bakers. More times than not, there also would be visits to the newsagent, tobacconist and confectioners, the chemists and, occasionally, to the ironmongers. Most of these shops, and especially those selling ration goods, would necessitate all the customers having a lengthy wait in an orderly queue. Queuing was part and parcel of everyday life, in wartime Britain. One queued for virtually any service or product, without any exaggeration of fact. In the fashion of the days my purchases were wrapped individually, by the shopkeeper or salesperson, placed in my own shopping bags and, eventually, carried home. It must be remembered that, at that time, many of the items purchased, especially food items, had to be sliced, weighed or otherwise dealt with. Packaging was not as universal, as it is today although due to rationing the total quantity of goods carried home was not great it, nevertheless, began to weigh heavily by the time the walk of about a mile was completed, some two and a half hours, to three hours, after setting out. Meantime, my mother would have done the housework and the washing. There were no universal cleaners, or washing machines, then. The only household aid, if you discount bar soap, was an old-fashioned mangle. This gadget was used, to get the worst of the moisture out of clothes that had been washed. After lunch, the two of us would walk the two miles into Kingston to obtain our non-food items or anything special that wasn't rationed, or which only required points. Points could be used anywhere, unlike rationed goods, for which one had to be registered with a particular shopkeeper. Invariably we would catch a bus, back to Surbiton and home after our Kingston expedition. My mother was always a keen walker and, that being the case, never considered using public transport for journeys under a mile. Her son, predictably, followed suit. One small improvement, in the lot of the ordinary citizen, occurred in 1943. The protective netting, which was affixed by strong adhesive to the windows of trains and buses, was removed. It is true this took many months, but the public was overjoyed. Everyone realized that the netting was a valuable air raid precaution but, not being able to see out of the windows when traveling was most aggravating. It is true that small areas were left on the windows, to enable passengers to see the station names or roadside landmarks, but these were most unsatisfactory. The removal of this material might seem a trivial thing, today, but such things were huge for morale at the time. The removal proved to be premature, but few cared. At Hammersmith, I was finding my schoolwork satisfying and enjoyable. The modicum of success I obtained, whilst only relative, was most gratifying. It was a good feeling, to be in the school proper and not in borrowed premises. There was, in the school, an air of stability and permanence that had been absent since the 1st of September 1939. The garden, at our new home, was quite large and it allowed me to expand my knowledge and liking for gardening. Government propaganda was constantly urging the population, to dig for victory and produce copious amounts of produce. We did our bit, at Surbiton. The soil wasn't the best, and a couple of large apple trees kept much of the soil shaded and short of moisture, but we did produce small carrots, decent-sized lettuce, a number of radishes, some excellent tomatoes and a miserable quantity of very small potatoes. There's no prize, for knowing that the tomatoes were placed in the only truly sunny spot in the garden. Nevertheless, it was a worthwhile exercise and, importantly, it took one's mind off the terrible things that were happening in the world at the time. Another form of relaxation was found in the playing of school sports. For the first time in my life, there was access to private sporting facilities. Sadly, over half the school's playing fields on Wood Lane were under cultivation, after having been commandeered by the government and turned over to allotments. 
However, with less than satisfactory frequency, as far as I was concerned, we played football in the winter and cricket in the summer. Team sports appeal led to me, although it was soon discovered that keenness and ability are not synonymous. Nevertheless my keenness must have meant something, for I did represent my school at both sports, albeit in the second and third elevens and, sometimes, as captain. Sport, also, brings me to one particular disappointment. The school was to play Eton at football. I had been selected to play, in goal, for the second or third eleven. The aged custom at Eton, which was known to me, was for your opposite number to offer you the hospitality of his rooms to change in and, after the match, have a meal. It seemed a most agreeable custom, to me, and it was anticipated with as much enthusiasm as much as the actual game. Imagine my disappointment when, because of fog, the game is postponed, and later cancelled. Football and cricket were important to me and it would be untruthful to say they weren't. In those days amateur sport was very popular and, without argument, many more people engaged in amateur sporting events than professional. Today, one has to hunt very hard to find a true amateur although, fortunately, they do still exist. Latimer taught us to play the game which, in my experience, most of the pupils seemed to do. We lacked any form of coaching, let alone proper coaches, due to the war. Kipling's poem If, especially the mention of winning and losing, was not only the cornerstone of our sporting endeavors but also our overall philosophy in life. Winning was only deemed worthwhile and worthy of satisfaction if nobody had been deliberately hurt, embarrassed, cheated or insulted in any way. I fear such sentiments or even the mention of them invite ridicule, in this the 21st century. Mention of amateur sport reminds me of an embarrassing moment for one boy, at the annual sports day which was held at the Chiswick Polytechnic Stadium in Grove Park. As it happens, this incident took place within about an hour of my only success in true athletics. A time of 6 minutes 36 seconds and 6 one hundredths of a second, was my winning time in the three quarters of a mile junior boys walk. This time was far from excellent and, sadly, it narrowly failed to admit me to the prestigious London school's athletic meeting held later in the year. But, to the point I was about to make. Later on that afternoon, the boys mile walk was in progress. Slowly, but inexorably, excitement slash interest slash consternation grew. I found myself torn from what I had been doing, to watch the race. The reason for the hushed commotion soon became obvious. One lad, well out of contention, was about to pass the packed stands for the second time. This sorry boy was the reason, for the great interest in the race. As he passed by us, the large crowd sent up a spontaneous and enthusiastic roar of encouragement. The crowd noise was a mixture of embarrassment and good wishes, combined with a mixture of delight and sympathy, as well as a mixture of genteel amusement and coarse good humor. It was, however, too much for the distracted and wholly embarrassed racer. He was well out in front, but he stood no chance of winning the race. In case the matter is still unclear in the mind of the reader, the peculiar gait of the speed walker is distinctive. It was this gait that caused the boy's acute embarrassment. Impending manhood often showed itself at the most inopportune times, as every boy knows. At that age, a bumpy bus ride or an idle thought was sufficient, to cause a boy's manhood to grow. The walker stopped racing on the back straight and he sat, at the side of the track, for some time. Having no great interest in the fellow, save my compassion, I went about my business and didn't see the lad again until the next day in school. I do not think the incident was mentioned, thereafter. People, in today's cultured and sophisticated world, find it fashionable to scoff and deride the childhood lifestyles, pastimes, and hobbies those of us who are no longer young, in years. Deigning to pass comment upon what is considered entertainment these days, allow me to make mention of this point. Let us consider the countless generations of children who, before the modern era, managed to occupy their time and imagination with simple pleasures that didn't hurt people, damage property, 
or disrespect anyone in any way whatsoever. The children of yesteryear occupied themselves by collecting numbers, playing with a bat and ball, hopscotch, conkers, marbles, and many other games that could be played virtually anywhere. The youngsters were also occupied, in chasing about engaged in age-old games and by using pencils and paper to play many of the games which, today, are played with handheld computers. Scouts and guides were very well patronized, likewise, the boys' brigade. It was necessary to occupy oneself because late on entertainment was, in many areas, completely absent. Cinemas and theaters reopened after a short while of being closed upon the outbreak of war but, apart from the Tupney rush on Saturday mornings, most children didn't have the money to attend at cinemas. The Tupney rush referred to a special Saturday morning film show for youngsters. It cost, as the name implies, tuppence and the show lasted for about two hours from 10 to 12 noon. Cartoons, news items and especially serials, which encouraged a regular attendance, were usually on the program, except in large urban areas, skating rinks, bowling alleys, swimming pools and such like, were non-existent. Television was, also, unavailable. Electronic devices, specially designed to occupy the minds of youngsters, were 50 years away in the future. It is hardly surprising that yesterday's pastimes appear crude and unsophisticated, when compared to the standards and customs of today. We, of the past generations, didn't ask to be entertained. Neither did we seek others to make, nor provide, our enjoyments, nor to supply the wherewithal so to do. My last few years, at the Latimer Upper School, were happy enough. I worked hard and achieved a modicum of success, but not sufficient to pass my general school certificate with which I might have gone to Cambridge. Although naturally I hoped for success, I wasn't surprised by my failure in the GSE exam. When I left, in 1947, I remembered the good and the interesting times both at school and at home. I remembered that, after about 18 months of waiting, I finally got a bicycle. Manufactured cycles were still not available. However, the shop manager made one from spare parts which were, with difficulty, obtainable. Whenever I had the opportunity, I had that bike under me. I cycled everywhere including, on a few school holidays, cycling with school friends across areas of England. This was done under the auspices of the Youth Hostel Association. This fine organization helped to provide, at minimum cost, information and accommodation. The accommodation was of the barest type, but it was sufficient. No bedding was provided and no service, of any description, was available. Nevertheless cooking facilities, bare beds, tables, chairs were provided, as was cold water and toilet facilities. The overnight occupants were responsible, for leaving the place as it was found. The YHA, provided all that was needed, for cyclists as well as for walkers. I also recalled that very soon after the long-awaited invasion of Europe, in June 1944, those of us living in the southeastern part of the country received a rude and unwelcome shock. In fact, we received a couple of rude shocks. The first was the arrival of the flying bombs, or V.1S. After we had all been lulled into believing the war was all but over, the mini blitz on London, from December 1943 through April 1944, had been a most unwelcome shock to our systems. However, with false optimism, we soon put it behind us and the day landings again made us think that the barometer of the war was showing set fair. Once more we thought, it was all over, bar the shouting. Then, near weeks after the day euphoria, the V-weapons started to arrive. In the southeast and particularly in London, they caused much destruction and many deaths, before they were stopped. However, this wasn't until into the new year. The flying bombs came, almost continually. The intervals between them changed, it is true, but at no time did one feel safe from the threat. In spite of this, and the fact that nothing could be gained if we didn't carry on normally, 
they soon became part and parcel of our living in London, and the other areas they fell to earth. These secondary areas included Southampton and Portsmouth. 30v.1s landed on these two towns and Manchester had one. London, however, was the primary target. Until they ceased to come, at the end of March 1945, 2,519 of these powerfully explosive bombs had landed in London. There was a slight lull when the Germans moved the launching sites to avoid the advancing Allied armies but, unfortunately for Londoners, the V.2s were landing in profusion during this period, so the pause wasn't really noticeable. The V.1, weapon, was a powerful and frightening machine which contained about a ton of high explosive. Because it didn't penetrate deeply into the ground, like conventional bombs, the blast's effect was more efficacious and widespread. The constant if irregular arrival of the V.1s was, I think, one of the worst of the war's incidental happenings. For many months, we spent much of the time listening for the unmistakable sound of one of these infernal machines. When one was heard, we focused on the engine, willing it to continue. If the engine stopped, we would suffer an involuntary moment of dread, before looking for somewhere to shelter. Sometimes a whole procession, of a dozen or more, would come over. Then, after a few hours' respite, maybe, a lone V.1 would be heard. They were, completely and utterly, unpredictable. Generally speaking, the people didn't crack under the strain of the V.1s. It could well have been a different story, if the buzz bombs had persisted for longer period. By the time the last one had done its damage, the V.1s killed 6,184 people and injured very close to 18,000 others. One of the injured, was the sister of my gran. Teresa or Tris, as she was known, was an elderly lady, being born on the 18th of June, 1883. The bomb landed a few houses away and Tris was buried, in the rubble of her home, along with her pet Budgerigar. Later, when they dug her out, it was found necessary for her to have her leg amputated above the knee. Poor Tris must have wondered what she had done, to deserve such traumatic experiences. It is probable that she never even met a German, before her horrifying ordeal. She became a statistic of the war but, to her family, this elderly lady remained a terrible example of the horror of it. Tris died in 1972, aged 89. She died never really knowing, or understanding, why she and her husband, who died earlier in a conventional bombing raid, had been selected for such tragedy. She wasn't alone. The back of our new home was blown away one night, by a flying bomb that landed in the next street. Brickwork, glass, wood, and other assorted debris, piled up round the Morrison shelter, under which both my mother and I were sheltering at the time. Besides the very real scare, I remember the dense, choking dust, more than anything else about the incident. We were lucky because, upstairs, our beds were covered with heavy debris. Twelve people died, in that one explosion. Shock, we are told, causes confusion, amongst other things. Perhaps, the following experience is a good example. When the noise and tumult had died down and the dust had settled a bit, my mother tried to leave our Morrison shelter. Three sides, of the shelter, were almost completely blocked with heavy debris. The one at the back, and furthest away from the explosion, seemed the most obvious way of exiting. It took my mother some time, to see this obvious fact, and it wasn't obvious to me either. She crawled out and, then, struggled over the piles of debris. It was only then, it was felt pertinent for me to ask what she was doing. In a monotone voice, she calmly informed me she was going to close the French doors comma to keep the drafts out. To both of us, at the time, this seemed eminently sensible and I felt my question had been answered. After doing goodness knows what, my mother returned to the shelter. Only in the light of the next morning, when we thought about the incident, did the truth strike us. There wasn't much back of the house left, let alone any French doors. 
We relived the incident and laughed uproariously. At the time it had seemed, both, sensible and normal behavior. Before the last V.1 landed, the V.2S had started. The V.2, was a rocket-powered bomb which reached great altitudes, before crashing to Earth and exploding. Due to the high altitude these bombs reached, their speed, upon reaching Earth, was greater than the speed of sound. Consequently, they arrived silently. This, most of us agreed, was preferable to the V apostrophe ones. The flying bomb's distinctive noise, and the sudden silence just prior to crashing to Earth, were strong, if unintentional, psychological weapons. Most people agreed it was far better, to have the silence before the V apostrophe 2's arrival and explosion. When both were arriving, albeit for a relatively short period, the citizens of London were not happy. Through it all, however, life went on and pretty much according to plan. One blessing associated with the V2 was that, because it plowed so far into the ground, its full destructive power was wasted. Had the explosion been allowed to spread out at or close to ground level, like the V.1, its force would have been far greater than it was. As it was, the slightly smaller V.1 caused more damage and destruction, than its larger stablemate. The V.2 started landing on London in early September 1944. 1,054 of them landed on London, at a rate of about 3 per day, until March 1945. 2,700 people were killed by this 2,150-pound bomb. It could have been worse. Nevertheless the V weapons caused more consternation, among the inhabitants of the land, than did the more conventional bombing carried out beforehand. Shortly after the end of the V weapons, came victory in Europe Day, May 6, 1945. Many of us naively thought, that life would be suddenly much better. How sadly wrong could we have been?